and welcome to the Green Majority here on the bright and sunny CIUT 89.5 FM. You know exactly what you're listening to are in your local community radio station, whatever those numbers and combination of numbers and letters and digits are. And we are on your podcast app, the Harbinger Media Network, wherever you might go. My name is David Hostetter. Stefan Hostetter has injured himself playing basketball, and he's weeping on his couch in self-pity, and he cannot speak this evening. But he's conducted a great interview with, I actually don't remember whom. Stefan just texted me, ah, KK Cool Thanks. That is classic Stefan. This is a text he has been sending since he received a cell phone, or since he was on online messaging apps. This is just classic Stefan. It just says the interview is 43 minutes long, so I'm just going to give him a call. Yo. Uh, it's it's with Mitchell Beer from the Energy Mix. Mitchell Beer, what are you talking about? Uh, well, we're testing out this new segment uh, where every month or so he comes on and says a couple different things that he's that that that, that perked his interest basically over the last over the last month. Okay. So we're talking cool. about the Trudeau carbon tax. We're talking about other energy things okay you sound like you're in pain i am in i am in certainly in pain <laughs> are you lying down tara says hi um no i'm sitting on the couch right now but i have a hot water back bottle on my back all right hi tara i gotta go he says hi back okay cheers see ya stefan has conducted a long interview with mr mitchell beer none other than the founder of the energy mix they are thinking about doing a new segment on this very show where Mitchell Beer comes on and just gives his expert opinion on energy stories. Love that. I'm an extremely, extremely lazy woman. So um, if we can download the work of this podcast to Mitchell, that sounds great. Go check out the Energy Mix. They do really, really good work over there. And you are hearing the voice of Lauren Latour. Oh, yeah. I need to introduce myself. Hey, guys. Lauren, she, her, uh, normally based out of Ottawa um, on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. But today I'm coming to you from uh, my childhood bedroom. And I would just underscore again, because I was, in fact, going to remind listeners, in case listeners don't know, the Green Majority thankless, thanklessly produces an hour of spoken word content every single week of the year, okay? So when we're talking about Mitchell Beer coming on and talking for a bit, you know, that's that's a good thing, okay? That is a good thing. Okay. My brain is pudding for the most part, so exactly. trying to extract coherent thought, a challenge. We don't talk because we love our own voices, all right? We talk because we love you, yeah. the listeners. Yeah, and we just like you to appreciate that. Okay. Let's get to the news. We should stop vamping. This morning, uh, well, the, the morning of, 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 of Wednesday, November 22nd of this week, the, the police, the Toronto police, have raided the homes of some Toronto activists uh, and made arrests. And then there was some uh, protest outside of the police division that the activists were being held at. And this is uh, has something to do with them putting up posters at Indigo, uh, sort of denouncing the CEO of Indigo, Heather Reisman's support for 
the Israeli military. So she will give money to Canadians who want to join the Israeli military. So for those of our listeners, well, all of our listeners who are based in so-called Canada, um, you might be familiar with Heather and Heather's picks um, of, of Indigo. And she has, um, as, as David mentioned, she has a charitable foundation called the H-E-S-E-G Foundation for Lone Soldiers reading here from a Toronto Star article. The foundation provides scholarships to former quote-unquote lone soldiers, those without family in Israel who served in the Israel Defenses Forces. So these are people who are not from Israel, who have made the decision to go move there to fight in the IDF um, and then want to stay. So that's what her fund covers. So anyway, yeah, so these these activists um, earlier on in November... um, put up posters at, uh, I believe a downtown, um, Indigo in Toronto. And like David said, as of this morning, um, after following a raids at their houses, they were arrested and were detained. And there were a large number of activist organizations, um, including Jews say no to genocide coalition, um, representing, if not now, independent Jewish voices, United Jewish People's Order, um, showing up for racial justice and world beyond war. Um, they headed down to the police station to um, to denounce those arrests and to protest in solidarity and in support with those who 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 were apprehended. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, this is a story that we're reporting on Wednesday and this won't air until Friday. So in all likelihood, developments will have happened since then. But just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention that, that that's been happening this week, which is fun for anybody who's curious. And if anything is still happening by the time this airs on Friday, that was a Division 52. I do not know where that is. Oh, wait, no, I do. 255 Dundas Street West was the station that they were brought to in case they're still there and in case you want to go protest yeah and a lot of the comments on this twitter post are like vandalism is a crime i'm like vandalism shouldn't be a crime we, we should be everything that the public can access should be public property okay um so over twelve thousand people have been killed in palestine including 5500 children and haretz is reporting that the u.s wants israel to open offshore uh, methane gas opportunities off the shore of gaza so there's Israel, I think, back in June was was thinking about already wanted to do this to a degree to to do open up uh, natural gas stuff off the off the coast of Gaza, and apparently the U.S. is now sort of trying to convince them to go forward with that. So. Yeah, that's and like that's the thing. It's like, and I'm not saying that all of this comes down to oil and gas extraction, but like there there it is, there it is. The shoe finally dropped. It's like now it's like the quiet part has finally be said been said out loud the way that this always just comes back to energy extraction and resource exploitation is it would be laughable if it weren't so devastating of course the war itself is is helping their the american economy but you know they they like some oil itself oil too uh and why not um so moving on to this is something i this is just sort of like i don't know anyway uh, I'm I'm reading off of notes that I did not use last week. So these are these are these are low grade. You've heard of low grade memes. These are low grade notes. Um, Martha Skowski and Peter Aldhaus are writing for Inside Climate News. This is just something I didn't realize and thought was interesting. So the prolific oil and gas wells off of uh, of in Texas also they generate uh, billions of gallons of salty liquid that they call produced water. And I guess they're, they're calling this toxic water, um, which also gets spilled. And they write that it gets actually spilled hundreds of times a year, 
from a large spill of uh, 756,000 gallons into the Delaware River in West Texas that sent chloride levels soaring to hundreds of small spills in one Permian Basin county. Uh, There's hardly a corner of Texas not impacted, but messy record-keeping and ambiguous rules at the Railroad Commission of Texas, which, which regulates oil and gas drilling, have long obscured the scope and severity of these spills from the public. And on that note, according to a new survey, 68% of Canadians uh, don't want to pay for the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline um, and think that oil companies should pay for it. But since the project is probably going to cost at least $31 billion now, uh, Canadians will probably end up paying at least $25 billion of that. And so the government, since the government already is building it and purchased it, they'll just write it off, and then that will be our collective uh, expense. And there's also a Sequempic knowledge keeper who's saying that the new route, so Trans Mountain a few months ago had to reroute a little bit, they're saying that the new route is a continuation of our cultural genocide since it's going to threaten a sacred site. And so here we are continuing. Like The thing is, with, with sacred sites, it's hard to understand, like as like a, a non-Indigenous person, what a natural sacred site really means. But they're 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 beautiful they're be, they're beautiful places that are just as important as like the most beautiful like I don't know, old European church or something like that. Like these are these are like cathedrals of the land that have history. Yeah, and then like and like in addition to that sort of like that sacred value that like like you said you made the comparison to like I don't know Notre Dame is one that everybody thinks about. Um, it's like that's also like in addition to being sacred land, it's 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 land on which people live and land on which people rely on to to survive, um, both both as individuals and 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 culturally. And I don't know, I I know we're just like we are constantly flogging the dead horse that is TMX to use a terrible phrase. It's just sort of like I cannot believe that the liberals rescinded, um. I guess not rescinded, but but gave that sort of like um, break in in carbon taxes um, on the East Coast, citing affordability. Meanwhile, they're tossing thirty one billion dollars at a pipeline that's never going to pan out, never going to result in 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 profits for citizens of so-called Canada when it's like, well, how about what if we bear with me here? We didn't pay thirty one billion dollars for a pipeline and instead like kept the carbon tax in place for everybody across so-called Canada and then use the $31 billion that would have gone to TMX and spent it on like, I don't know, providing people with heat pumps and stuff like that, doing deep retrofits to alleviate the stress of a carbon tax on individual homeowners and individual property owners. Like, it's just like, I don't know, the way money is being spent is just so frustrating. And it's not that I don't want to spend money. I do want to spend money. I don't think money is real. I believe in, I don't know, an ethic of, of, of abundance and us spending a ton of government money on really great government services. What isn't a government service is the TMX pipeline, which is anyway. Um, and then the other thing I just want to go back to, I don't like to think about issues around fresh water all that much because they freak me out in a very intense way. Um, <laughs> because water is a scarce resource and is only becoming scarcer, but like, I don't know the fact that there's this like quote unquote toxic water being spilled into like the Delaware river in West Texas in huge, huge quantities is incredibly frightening when you like think for a half a second about how, um, 
increasingly uh scarce fresh water is becoming in the uh american southwest um it's 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 rough and it's getting rougher and malpractice like this certainly isn't going to alleviate pressure and stress on the situation so we're gonna go to a music break and come back with stefan hostetter speaking with mitchell beer of the energy mix and you are guaranteed to enjoy that discussion And we will talk to you next week. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are... A proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with Mitchell Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix, for what we are hoping is going to be a somewhat regular check-in on energy stories from across the country and the planet. Thanks so much for being here, Mitchell. Thanks for having me, Stefan. It's a delight to be here. And so for our listeners who may not know why we're doing this, The Energy Mix, as we previewed on a previous episode... You're constantly pulling in news stories on energy for your newsletter and for for all your publishing. And so when we, as a show that only airs once a week, we only have an hour, but we want to stay up to date as much as you can on this kind of issue, it's really helpful for us to be able to be like, okay, you've now gone, it's been about a month. There's been a bunch of stories that have happened. What are the ones that sort of stick out to you the most? What are the ones that sort of pique your interest the most? And what are the ones that we should be thinking about and talking about so that we can give that value to our listeners? And so that's the hope is that we're sort of, you know, you've spent the whole month peeling through the stories and these are the ones that you really come out thinking about. And then we will talk about them on the show. And then if folks do have questions, I'll just throw that out there. If folks have specific energy related questions that they would like me to pose to Mitchell, you can email the show and I will bring them to future versions of this segment. Although we do need a fun name for the segment. That'll be a future goal for us too. Perhaps sometime if we come maybe, up. Maybe we could ask readers for that. I there you go. Listeners, sorry, you're you're hearing a print publisher. <laughs> we should ask listeners for that and see what we hear back. Maybe yeah, exactly. be a measure of how well people like this or not, right? Right. Yes. And yeah. name, we take the message. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Okay, well, there you go. So either names or questions. We'll accept both for this segment. But let's start with the piece that I think you know, has been one of the major climate stories of the last month. We covered it briefly on the show before. So we've talked about it a little bit, but getting your perspective would also be great, which is this decision around the carbon pricing carve out. And, you know, there's been multiple stories about how much of a mistake it was, the ways it sort of has created additional problems for the government and for the carbon tax in general. But but you think that there might be a, a, a win as well available to us. So can you sort of tell us the story as you see it and in your thoughts on it. 
Well, without going back over the last three weeks of just just wall to wall blanket news coverage and what I call manufactured controversy, there's been some really interesting thinking and publishing, and we've tried to follow it as close as we can. Groups like Efficiency Canada saying, you know, that this is either going to be another round of incredibly arcane technical sort of rarefied argument about a carbon price or efficiency canada piece of this is we make this about affordability we recognize that the oil the heat pump replacement program is for households in places like nova scotia where they have no choice but oil heat and people are households are paying 650 dollars per month not per year but per month for oil heat that they have no no choice but to use so through that lens you know something that's being portrayed as wrongly portrayed you know as a ripoff is in fact a relief for low and moderate income canadians who who are stuck with the worst heating option available and paying through the nose for it something that they can't afford so the win would be to say okay you know there are you know there are other people who are hurting because of their home heating costs and lots of other costs you know, the price in Alberta, I'm told, is $650 per year, not per month. But if that's what you're paying and you can't afford it, it's still tough. So an option for showing the affordability, showing the opportunity in the shift over to heat pumps, in the shift to more energy efficient housing, is to accelerate that part of the announcement. And this is not to call for any further carbon price carving. Because the carbon price as a policy, it's not a silver bullet to solve climate change, but it does make sense. The opportunity would be to expand the energy saving and expand the cost saving. A heat pump can save a household $2,500 a year. So extend that farther and wider, get it out to people who and households and regions that are feeling disenfranchised by this announcement. And make the decision from the bottom up, not from the top down, and make it clear that it's available to everybody. I mean, I, I, you know, we smashed the crystal ball the last time we moved the moved the office and we haven't been able to find a replacement. So I can't say, you know, what political impact this will or won't have, but it'll be the right thing to do. First of all, for anybody who is stuck with home heating costs. And secondly, for anybody who's concerned about decarbonizing buildings that account for a large proportion of the country's total greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. So it's a win and a win and potentially a political win. First and foremost, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, for sure. And that really dovetails, you know, to the the next topic, which I think we can spend a bit of time on because it's pretty expansive. And that is the shift, the sort of needed shift. And I would say we're seeing it in different places. I There's a, a few new organizations that are coming through. The most recent David Suzuki Foundation reports highlight the way that climate action dovetails with affordability. And there is more and more sort of opportunity here, I think, to make this conversation connected and to let people see that action on climate change can also improve your life and that doing them together has benefits across the board. But how do you see this? I would actually take a one step top that. Because if we're going to align with the majority, possibly the vast majority of Canadians who aren't already inside the, inside the climate bubble, the argument, I think, and, and, and where this comes from, 
first and foremost is from listening to people rather than lecturing at them. The argument is not climate hawks have been trying to save for years and decades, which is if we do this, you'll also get all these other benefits. Really, it starts out from, you know, for a household that routinely has to choose between food and fuel, we're going to solve that problem together. And by the way, you're going to cut your emissions along the way. You've been hearing about climate change. If you're routinely choosing between food and fuel, you don't have the time or the bandwidth to think very much about climate change, but solving the problem that's right up in front every day for you, you know, getting you into a healthier house so that, you know, you're not constantly taking your child to the hospital with asthma attacks so that you're not constantly getting colds in, 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 and worse in a, in, a, in a drafty apartment so that you're not sweltering in the summer heat. By the way, if we address all of that, we're also going to be cutting your emissions along the way. You know, the climate community loves to talk about coal benefits, and I, it's been decades, not years, since I first heard that term. The, you know, the idea that if we just join, you know, join this long-term fight, there are all kinds of other things we get out of it. What if the climate benefit for everybody else is the co-benefit of the challenge they wake up thinking about and worrying about in the morning or can't get sleep at night worrying about? That's how we really turn the conversation around. The only, sorry, the only other thing I want to emphasize is I'm not just suggesting this as a messaging line. I'm suggesting it as, as a genuine change in perspective because if it's just a messaging line, it'll be worse than doing nothing at all. We have to really mean it. We have to really give it down. And I think fundamentally we do. We have to show it, express it, put it first. Yeah, and it's funny. What you're describing is very much aligned with a conversation we were having a couple of years ago, to be honest, on the show around multi-solving, which is this sort of term that sort of came out of, of a professor named Beth Sawin in the States. But it really is something that is a concept that exists, has existed for you know a very, very long time, which is about solving multiple problems. But the one major key about the work that was being described and that has, done, has been this idea that climate is the co-benefit of helping people rather than climate action has co-benefits. And that that yeah. that shift of helping people first with their immediate needs in a way that also has climate benefits is, I mean, is obviously what I think is growing in terms of when you see a lot of people who are working in community-based projects, I know for sure that some of the work that here in Toronto, I know that the Atmospheric Fund spent a long time sort of working on very, very carbon-specific projects and focusing exclusively on the carbon reduction from projects. But one thing that they have learned in their work and that they have sort of reported back to, to me and to the community is that the way you get longevity and the way you get people to really take these works on is is to flip the script you know is to work on the on the immediate problems first with the types of actions that then solve and work on climate action you know like oh you have a, you have difficulty with you know transportation well, like let's let's help that program first. But the way we support it is in ways that will help reduce carbon in the long run, and and that yeah. is some has been growing. And, and before I throw it back to you, the one other thing that that sort of ties into this is this recent announcement uh, from the Institute for Research on Public Policy of this F Affordability Action Council. Yeah, which I think yeah. is a very very interesting sort of 
it doesn't feel transformative in that, like, you know, you say, I'll say it in a second what the tagline is. And I think people will be like, oh, yeah, that is, I guess, makes sense. But I do think that there's something here in the way they're going about it that is transformative, which is their tagline is supporting cross Canada relief on basic needs, food, shelter, transport, and a livable climate. And it's that bringing together that I think will ultimately lead to results and even the order there i think is very key you know it starts with food which if you've been around the recent reports on food security in canada are very dire like very okay. very dire obviously when you ask you know, i was at a conference earlier this week and there was a big question around what is the biggest issue in your area and i think mm. every area across canada said the housing crisis and so you know these are issues that are front of mind for everyone and all of it is impacted by action on climate and the need for action on climate will ultimately be required to sort of, you know, get a stable food system, for example. Like you can't you can't you can't take those two apart. That's right. I mean, I don't want to uh, and I'm sure you don't to be second guessing or frankly trashing, you know, friends and colleagues and allies who've made climate change their lives work. And likewise, you know, obviously it's the crisis and the challenge of our lifetimes. And none of this is to, just, to suggest that climate action and really fast emission reductions should not and, and you know must not be on the agenda. But the moment we step inside the bubble of folks who have already made that call, made that decision, who are reading that material every day, then, I mean, it starts there with just basic respect. You know, if, you, if you're if any of us have conversations these days that aren't about climate change anymore, you know, if you're starting a conversation with someone, do you lead with what you're most interested in or with what they are? If you want it to be better conversation, you lead with what they're most interested in. And something that I have really been enjoying, and it's only over the last four or five years, but I've been experimenting with, I mean, you know, declaring myself a climate hawk, that isn't hard, but then getting into a conversation and seeing how deeply we can get into defining problems, defining solutions without using any of our standard C words like climate and carbon and crisis. Can we get through a whole conversation about climate change without calling it that? Not because we're trying to deny it, but we're kind of because we're trying to take that reality as a starting point and just take it as a given and and move into what matters to the other person or the other organization. The conversations are fascinating. They are so much better. They go so much deeper and cover ground that you never would have heard or imagined if you hadn't just listened. So here, let me lecture at you about that a little bit longer. I do get that irony and people are really kind about it, but it works because it should, because it's right, it's polite, it's respectful, and it gets us where we need to go. Yeah, and it and it gives you an opportunity to learn in ways as well, right? Like, oh. it, so often I've been sort of fascinated in conversations where you know, I've sort of taken a step back. I'm like, all right, you're not going to be my traditional person who might care about the climate change at all, so I'm not really going to get into it. But then there's specific little pieces that they people say they're like, oh, that's interesting, you know, like you you're conservative, but you very much see the problems of consolidation of capital, for example. Which I think, which happens a lot in the in the farming community, which you know may often feel conservative, but like we start talking about the ability for larger and larger farms to gobble up small enough, like that's the consolidation of capital, something that that they see and experience, and 
they're into like or, or whenever you talk to people from the National Farmers Union, sort of like their insights into how they talk about and how they focus on it, again, is super interesting because like people see it, right? Like it's not like people don't experience the wildfire smoke or, you know, the flooding or et cetera, but it does depend on sort of what their particular issues are or what they experience or how they interpret what they're experiencing as right. sort of a deeper mm-hmm. question. Through their own lens. Um, I heard a story, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> start that over. I heard a story from another climate communicator a few years ago. She was speaking on a webinar about a project she was involved in with where a group of scientists were trained in this form of, or climate scientists were trained in this form of communication. And if no criticism or a slight to them that they needed to be trained in, if they were, you know, in their work, they were used to communicating in a different way. And this was in preparation for a meeting, a meeting with farm leaders in quite a conservative state in the United States. And so they gathered and said, so, you know, instead of saying, you know, how about that climate crisis? What are we going to do about it? They started it with what keeps you up at night. And what kept them up at night was water access and availability. And instead of saying, which any of us, in the climate community are capable of. I know I've certainly perpetrated this one way too many times instead of over the years, instead of saying, yeah, you think that water access thing is bad now. Just wait till 30 years from now. You better do something, right? We, we've all been there. Instead of that, they said, well, you know, and they, this wasn't exactly the phrasing, but they said, well, you know, you're here every day, you know, and you work a farm. So we get it. You have records going back to the beginning of time. You must. We only get to visit once in a while. And thank you, by the way, we're so thrilled to be here. But you know so much better than we do. Is this something new? The thing you're concerned about, this water issue, water access issue, is this new? Is it getting worse? And the response was, oh, yeah, absolutely. And by the end of one day, not because it was on anybody's agenda, published or hidden, but because of the way the conversation unfolded, this group of conservative farm leaders had come up with carbon pricing as one part of their solution, not to the climate emergency, but to water access and availability. So what could possibly be wrong with that picture? And what's wrong with the picture if we're in a situation where we can't find our way to that kind of outcome because we're so stuck to our existing script? Yeah, exactly. I remember there's a another person I talked to briefly before we move on to our next topic, which is that there's a a person I met who came here who was teaching was teaching climate in Utah. And obviously Utah is not known as the most progressive state in the world. And so he had this very interesting position of teaching climate issues and, and climate change to people who basically didn't believe in climate change, straight up, right? And But he was a water researcher. And so what he really did focus on was Basically, it was water levels and water research of I, I don't know if it was Salt Lake or or what it was, but there was, it was a lake in his in the in the on the campus that they were researching, and basically over time, like the lake kept getting smaller and smaller. Like the impacts, you could start seeing it get more. You know, all of the impacts you'd expect from climate change were happening on the lake, and he was using students who were doing the research, and so like they were pulling it, and it became a thing of like. You know, I don't have to tell you this is climate change, but we all can see that things are happening to this lake and we can all tell that this is a problem that's growing, you know, and as as you said, 
we can all sort of come to our own conclusions, even if you want to. Like, obviously, we're happy to tell you it's climate change because it is. But we're also sort of bringing you along in the process and letting you see the data for yourself and build your own case. You know, like what what is what are people's own cases that would give them a chance to sort of believe in this sort of thing? Or and I, I don't think at this point the people who are straight up dismissing climate change are a pretty as a smallish percentage. And so I don't know whether or not we need to be fighting those battles. But the people who aren't, you know, who might be more in the mushy middle, who are like, I know it's happening, but it won't be bad or, or things like that. That's, I think, the folks where you want to pull along a little bit faster and be like, okay, what is it for you that would concern you? Well, let me tell you about, or let's talk about the ways that you might see it impact you, and then you can go from there. And let me take one step further. But if we know that Great Salt Lake is disappearing at a really frightening rate, if we know that the health and environmental impact, quite apart from the the climate change implications, that the local health and environmental impacts of that are going to be devastating. And we know that we need critical mass fast. And it doesn't matter for what argument, as long as the argument is that the yes, very conservative legislature in, in Utah will actually do something about this, whatever action they could take, that they'll actually get on board, make it a priority. Does it really matter whether somebody gets on board because they agree that this is a manifestation of climate change and say, oh, it's fine. Okay, I'm sorry, you were right. Right. If they only get on board because they're worried about the air quality implications of that lake disappearing, if they only get on board because they used to love the lake, and yet they still think this isn't climate change, but they damn well want their elected representative to do something about it. And if they don't believe that it's climate change, they're probably more likely to have voted for those Republicans. Okay, so sure, you know, presented as climate change, because that's the fact. At the same time, if somebody wants to get involved in that fight and help win it while we still have time to, do I do we really need to be the smartest kids in the room and convince them that it's climate change? Yeah, for sure. The impact we need and the atmospheric gain, the carbon reductions, the ecosystem restoration, all the things that we need, those things will happen regardless of anybody's individual perception of how or why it needed to happen. The important thing is that it happens and speeds up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so speaking of trying to speed up climate, I'm going to pivot to our next story because I think it is, um, we talked about a little bit on last week's show and it's a constant source of both inspiration and frustration, I will say, which is, you know, which, you're talking about the cop. I just know it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're upcoming cop 28. And I mean, again, there are things that are happening now that have come out of previous cops that would not have happened had we not had it right. Like there's, it is certainly true that the $100 billion of loss and damage funds that have been approved and finally now seeming like that will come together wouldn't exist if we didn't have these things, right? Like, I think that's a fair something to say. And so the idea that they're totally useless is, I think, not a fair claim. At the that's same nice time, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, at the same time, there is, I mean, we have not seen the speed at which we expected. Most countries are not hitting their Paris Climate Accord goals, and we are still in a scenario that is, leaves us into a deeply risky position in, on the global climate. And the, the the agreements at these situations are often 
sort of feels like fiddling around the edges to around a around a core that is that is deeply deeply flawed. But that said, you know, again, as someone who sort of focuses on energy side of things in your experience, what are you looking for out of this cop? What do you expect out of this cop? And and what should we be sort of looking and paying attention to as we go through it? I think, first of all, your point that it is such a limited, slow, process-bound, process-driven setting. It, it's exactly right. I attended three cops in 27, uh, 2015 through 17. So, you know, compared to somebody who's been to every one of them, most of them, I have a really limited perspective. I'm still really a sort of a <laughs> um, bit of a newbie on this scene, but I've, I've been following them from a distance since the ones that I attended. First of all, just the pros and cons of the process, the argument you'll hear is that it's a pretty awful process and it's the best that... I guess what we like to call civilization on the last day of the COP, it doesn't really feel like it. It's the best we've been able to come up with for 195 countries to come to consensus on anything when every single one of them, all of them, all the time, are trying to negotiate the common interest from the position of their own national interests. And it's understood that everyone's doing that. So it makes it just frightfully complicated. The consensus process itself has been coming in for some some scrutiny. And the, the, the fact that every country has to agree or at least not actively disagree on any COP decision is something that was baked into the way the meetings were set up when the structures were first set pretty much three decades ago. And the argument that I'd always heard was that it needs to be a consensus process or else the smallest countries that can only afford the smallest delegations and are you know, generally, you know, read, read poorest or smallest, and those are the countries on the that are most on the front lines of the climate emergency, that those countries will get steamrolled if they don't have the ability to block consensus. But the counter to that, of course, is any petro state can do it as well. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United States, India, China, certainly Canada as a petro state. We I don't know that we've been blocking consensus on stuff lately, but you know, any country can and will water down a final agreement or, you know, sort of negotiate in the back rooms. The other really significant piece of it is that I've seen numbers for either 400 or 600 fossil fuel industry delegates um, who routinely attend these conferences. And this year's conference is being chaired by a fossil fuel CEO. So so the process, again, gets really, really tough, really enmeshed. But it's going to end up being a lot more limited than anybody would ever want it to be. That said... If you sort of look back toward the look back as far as the Paris Agreement in 2015, I'd say both things are true. Obviously, all the reports that we're seeing now, and it's reporting season before the cops, so we're seeing them, yeah, sort of all land at once, like you know, sometimes two and three reports a day. Obviously, yeah, we're way off the target. I think I, I think we're we're on a path to 2.7 degrees, and we need to hit 1.5 as an absolute maximum, not as sort of a nice to have target. I think you're also right that a lot of the progress we're seeing would not have happened if not for the Paris Conference, if not for the Paris Agreement. It helped build momentum, it helped build understanding, it helped build something closer to, you know, obviously we don't have consensus everywhere we need it for, for action or for the kind of action we need, but we're still getting more than we would have had. Is it enough? No. Is it worth doing? Arguably, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. On balance, just because there's nothing else at this point. What to expect this year? 
first of all, yep, there's been there's been an agreement on loss and damage, which, as many of your listeners probably know, is the UN language, or I like to call it the COP speak, for the unavoidable impacts of climate change that are hurt, hitting the countries that are hurting the first and worst, that are dead off in the poorest countries in the world. So it's something like our small island state is going to disappear under the seas. And that's already baked in. That's a loss and a damage that we cannot just be, you know, we, we, there, there, there's no way to adapt to that. Our country literally won't be there. That loss and damage. The seawater is coming up and infiltrating and literally salting the earth. So we can't farm anymore. That's a loss and damage. One third of our country, if we're, you know, ha- has just been inundated by a flood. That's a loss in damage, you know, and it'll come from like, you know, heat waves and wildfires and the rest. So the, the, I, I've always thought that part of the reason for the language of loss and damage is that we can't call a compensation because then the United States would walk because so many of their countries, so many of their companies, rather, are so, so deeply, deeply complicit in this. So loss and damage is funding, not compensation, mind you, it's funding. And it's not a legal obligation, mind you, but it is still funding for these countries that are most affected to be able to take actions to reverse or, or, or in some way deal with the impact they face. At last year's COP, there was an agreement they would do this. They did not agree on how, they didn't agree on when or on how much. And the agreement that we've seen in the last weeks has advanced that, honestly, I think a lot more than some people thought would happen before the COP. So that's one. The $100 billion that you refer to is something different, actually. At the 2009 UN Climate Conference in Copenhagen, the rich countries promised that by 2020, they would put together $100 billion per year in climate financing for developing countries. They would hand that over so that the necessary work of decarbonizing energy and other systems would be funded in countries that wouldn't, if they just don't have the capacity to fund it for themselves. More recently, that has expanded out into climate adaptation as well, because for a long time, adaptation was sort of the poor cousin in COP talks. And, and it's been, I'm not knowledgeable enough of adaptation to be able to say whether it's gone far enough yet, but adaptation is now more of a picture, but more in the picture for that hundred billion than it was. There are issues to watch for. What proportion of it is loans versus grants? You know, to what degree do we have the outrageous, outrageous scenario of a colonial power like the UK or the US very graciously extending loans at full commercial rate or close to it to the poorest countries in the world, as opposed to doing what was originally expected and intended and that actually handing it over as grants. Our environment and climate minister made this, Stephen Gilboa made the point in the last couple of days that, yeah, it's great that we finally got the $100 billion. We're only two years past our own self-imposed deadline, but, you know, what should actually be a trillion, you know, and, and yes, absolutely. And, and let's be glad we have an environment minister who, first of all, will say that. And secondly, who knows that because he has attended every COP since COP1, but the $100 billion is in place. So credit where due. The United States and China have been meeting, which is a good thing in itself, over the last few weeks. And they have agreed, first of all, to coordinate, I guess, climate actions to take into account all emissions, including methane, which is crucial because methane is a climate pollutant that's about 85 times more potent than carbon dioxide over a 20-year span. You'll hear smaller numbers from it over a longer span, 
But if we're going to get climate change under control, it's the 20 years that matter. So they've both agreed to accelerate action on all climate pollutants, but including methane, including nitrous oxide. So this is good news. They've also agreed to work together to triple renewable energy capacity around the world by 2030. And both of those actions are consistent with what we heard from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change when they issued their latest massive science assessment earlier this year. They identified solar, wind, and methane controls as the most affordable and the fastest way to get the deepest carbon cuts this decade. So seeing the two most powerful countries and the two biggest emitters in the world, uh, China and the U.S., agree to that in advance of the COP, brings some momentum to the negotiations. The United States and the United Kingdom agreeing that they also want to triple nuclear capacity is not so consistent with the IPCC because nuclear is one of the most expensive and least promising pathways. But they've never, you know, unequivocally good stuff happening without, you know, some questionable stuff as well. The key thing to remember with any COP is that it all depends on implementation. They can say what they're going to say. And then, you know, the not quite the day after, because the day after everyone's sleeping in. But when everyone gets back to their desks, that's when things start to backslide. That's when things can start to reroute. And really carrying forward on that implementation, particularly on the part of the, the biggest polluters and the biggest polluting industry, beginning with fossil fuels. One item we've not heard nearly enough about, speaking of fossil fuels, is that there have necessarily been calls for this COP to call for a phase out of all fossil fuels, not just a phase down of coal, which is what they agreed in Glasgow two years ago. We need a phase out of all fossil fuels and and all you're gonna get a COP is an agreement in principle, but it leads to an agreement in principle that that's going to happen. We haven't been hearing so much about that, I don't think over the last number of days and weeks. So the advocacy is there, I haven't seen that the momentum is there among the negotiating countries to actually do anything with that. And if they leave COP28 without a fossil fuel phase out, I'm not sure it'll be surprising, but it'll still be a failure. Yeah, for sure. And we'll I guess we'll wait and see. We, this this show airs on the 24th, and so only we'll be less than six days away from the beginning of it. And it does a little bit feel like yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say both sort of like, does it make sense to exist? And also, like, I do feel like these cops, when ultimately we solve climate change, which I have to believe is true, right? Like, I can't, I can't exist w- without believing that we will win. You know, when Likewise. exactly remains, Absolutely. but I, I got to believe it's happening. And I also believe that, like, th- all, when we do, the stories from these international agreements will be a significant part, most likely, barring aliens coming down and giving us clean technology, which would probably overshadow most other parts of the success. But um, but I like it. <laughs> and you know what, by the way, if aliens came down and gave us new technology, Republicans in the US Congress would say, first of all, it's fake news. Secondly, you know, this is, these are the people that our conspiracy theories were made of. So no, we can't use that technology, but we don't want China to have it either. Right. Yeah, true. So, you know, I, but if we win with alien technology, you know, the combination of the two, you know, we, you're right. Alien technology does not guarantee success. We, at this point, literally have p- cheapest energy ever in solar and, and wind, and we still aren't seeing the action as fast as possible. So the idea that we could get alien tech that would, you know, 
like in reality, like what we have now was probably considered alien 20 years ago. But what I was trying to say was that I do think that the existence of these international agreements and the work being done there will be a significant chapter of the eventual success. You know, I, I, I like they'll, it, it'll be one yeah. of many, but I, I, I do believe it's got to, it's got to be a part of it. My guess is, and as I say, we, you know, no crystal ball here, but my guess is that when people write those stories, um, first of all, yes, I agree. It'll be a story of a win. I think they will look back on the Paris conference, look back on COP28 in Dubai being chaired by a Petro state and led by a Petro state. And where there are wins, if they're reporting accurately and have the records to work from, they'll call the win. And I think they'll be astonished that that was the best process we could come up with, that vested interests and entrenched interests were so incredibly powerful and unrelenting that we couldn't do any better. I think they'll be astonished that even though we won, we came so close to losing it all and we left so many behind. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and, you know, I, 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 I never like to end any conversation on that kind of downer because in spite of all that, yes, there are incredibly positive things happening. We are going to win. We are winning. And we really did not need to make it this hard for ourselves. Both of those things are true. Some of the wins since we're there that I think they'll be documenting They'll be looking at things like the European Green Deal. They'll be looking at things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. And if they're really doing their early 21st century United States history, they'll be saying, you're seriously telling me that Joe Manchin helped save the world? But the evidence will tell them that, and it'll also tell them how totally weird that is. They will be looking at the report that we saw this week that China's emissions are set to decline next year, you know, based on a set of assumptions and trends, but this is a really credible analog saying, not only that China's emissions are on the way down next year, but they may well be into a period of structural decline where that's going to continue. And when people are looking back on the win, they're going to look to that as the moment, first of all, when the world's biggest, not historical, but present day, carbon polluter, began reaping the carbon benefits of the incredible, massive clean energy and renewable energy investment that they've been doing for a long time. They will also mark that as the moment when no climate denier, no climate delayer, no fossil fuel funded apologist was ever again able to say Canada needn't do anything because China's not at the table. And the fact that China decarbonizing makes it easier for us to fight that fight is really secondary, except through a Canadian lens. But if they're really writing as long-winded a history as I'm giving you right here, they'll include it. They probably don't want to be as long-winded. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, I'm sure they'll very long, many books will be written about it eventually. But I, I mean, I will say, I think it's a great place to go out. Books, is... how old school, oh my God. <laughs> books persevere. I believe in books. I've been yeah, reading but what more form recently. Will they take? That's a whole other show. Fair. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
I mean, there are many people who believe that missions to China wouldn't peak until 2030, if not beyond. So if they truly have peaked by 2024, that's like maybe the best news we've had in climate this entire year. Like that, you know, it's truly one of those things you don't want to miss, because if that is actually true, that is a huge and fundamental, important thing to have to have happen and to be happening. There have been a few moments, not enough, but there have been a few over the last year and a half or two. When I read a headline, caught my breath and said to family, we just won today. And that was one of them. For no sure. one moment is going to win it. But that's all the more reason to take the wins where we can and take them where we see them and recognize them where we see them. When the International Energy Agency in 2021 actually published a 1.5 degrees Celsius scenario, a, a net zero scenario that worked and that was legitimate and, and, and was defend, right? That was huge. When the IEA declared that oil, oil and gas as well as coal consumption is going to peak globally before 2030. That was a win, a really technocratic win, but it's still a win for all of us. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the, the answer to climate despair. You know, that we're still in this place where the last chapters haven't been written yet. I really wish they had been, and I, but we still have the power to write them. And the only guarantee that we're going to lose is if we convince ourselves we already have. That's so much easier to say and just sort of toss off the line than it is to actually stay right up against it every single day. And people only should be doing that to the extent they can stand to. But let's not assume we've lost because we haven't. Yeah, 100%. And so with that positive note, we will call this conversation to a close as we are running out of time. But thank you so much. This has been Mitchell Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix. Again, we will be doing this about monthly. And so we'll be having Mitchell back shortly, I think, after COPPA, right near the tail end. And so if you have any questions or a suggestion on the name for this, we are soliciting both. Email us at contact at greenmajority.ca. Thank you so much, Mitchell, and have a wonderful day. You too.